people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Когда я был маленьким, я тоже отдыхал в пионерских лагерях. Дети, вы хозяева лагеря. Вы. От вас что требуется, друзья мои? В день приезда он фехтовался на палках. Ты меня в группу будешь. Я издал приказ об отчислении Иночкина. Ну что он такого ужасного сделал? Ты лучше посмотри, что у тебя в отряде творится. Пять волхвороков, четыре сыпью, инфекция, интоксикация, карантин. Карантин! Завтра бабка тут такой начнется. А че ты здесь делаешь? А? Кто отдаст свою кровь? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Gianna D'Amelio. Glad to be back. Still in the booth with us is Mr. Alistair Pitts. Greetings, Comrade White. We continue our month of discussing Soviet cinema with a look at the 1964 film Welcome or No Trespassing. It's the story of a group of kids at a summer camp where one boy, Enochkin, breaks from the pack and swims a little too far. He's immediately expelled by the director, but later Enochkin returns. The film is a fast-paced and whimsical bit of political allegory. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Gianna, I'm very curious. When did you see this one the first time, and what did you think? So I'd seen other films by Alan Klimov, and this film, his first one, is super, super famous, and it always intrigued me that the director of Come and See got his start in comedies. What the hell is that trajectory, right? It makes sense to me. It makes sense to me now. But but anyway, I'd love to talk about Klimov's career after the film because it's super interesting and he really made a big impact on Soviet cinema. Um, but anyway, so this film had like always come up in textbooks. And then I finally sat down and watched it after hearing somewhere that it was the director Daria Zhuk's favorite Soviet film. Uh, and I love her film, The Crystal Swan. So I thought, all right, I'm finally going to watch it. And I loved it. And this was actually right before you suggested it for the podcast, Ali. And Alistair, how about yourself? I saw this for the first time about four years ago when I decided to cover it on my show, Roost Files Unite. And I was so surprised by how biting the, the satire was. I was lucky enough to discuss it with... Tanya Lukyanova, who is a Russian-born, uh, New York-based TV producer and uh, part-time 
stand-up comic. So having somebody with that kind of comedy background kind of unpacking some of the jokes was helpful. But I was just, really? They made satires this biting in a place that's not exactly famous for being conducive to freedom of speech. So I was totally blown away by it. I don't even remember how I heard about this film. I think just the title captured me so much. And then watching it, I was just so reminded of Czech films and that period of time when it was the, you know, the, the thaw for them and they had this freedom where they could make fun of people and make fun of authorities, though couching it in other ways. Oh my God. Yeah. The satire in this is amazing. I mean, it's not, you don't have to scratch too deep to find the political allegory in this film, but man, oh man, just that magical realism, that kind of whimsy that this film has. It reminded me of just so many great comedies and it just moves along. What's this movie? 73 minutes long. And it is everything that I don't have in my head when I think about Russian films, you know, very ponderous, you know, I think of freaking Tarkovsky, you know, this kind of stuff. And this is polar opposite, baby. This is hilarious stuff. Funny because Tarkovsky made Ivan's childhood two years before this. And while those are very different films tonally, they both are revolutionary because they get inside the heads of kids. Children's cinema really blossomed during the Stalin era, but it was it was this kind of version of childhood that was very regimented and very disciplined. And kids were sort of like the ideal Soviet citizens. They were encouraged to inform on their parents. Uh, they were hardworking. And, and but then you get you get into Ivan's head and you get to see the trauma of war that was not allowed to be talked about during the Stalin era. And you get to see it really rob someone of their childhood. And then you get to see inside Kostyanochkin's head and you get to see disrespect to adults and you get to see creativity and innovation and just charm. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's revolutionary for this period of Soviet cinema to be so engulfed in someone's psychology in such an honest way that really points to the flaws in the system. We should say that this all takes place at a young pioneers camp, which obviously we didn't really have those here. It's kind of like, Boy Scouts-ish type thing, a little Nazi youth-ish as well, maybe? It's set in a camp for kids who are members of the Communist Youth League. In this case, it's the Young Pioneers. And the Young Pioneers were kids aged 10 to 14. And yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to talk really quickly about like the purpose of these camps and like what makes them the perfect setting for a satire. The Communist Youth League's in this case, the Young Pioneers, there were miniature versions of the Communist Party for kids. And there were versions of this for kids as young as seven, up until you could join the actual Communist Party at 28. And membership was restricted to kids with like acceptable backgrounds. No one with a family member who had been arrested in a purge, for example, could join. There was a lot of prestige to belonging. Kids love to wear the little like red kerchief in their schools and uh, belonging to one of these youth leagues open doors throughout your life. And there were various activities and responsibilities every week. But belonging to the Young Pioneers also guaranteed you at least one month of camp in the summer every year. And these camps were designed to like prepare kids for the fully communist future that was always being built and never actually materialized. These camps are like little models of the future implanted in the present in the sense that like all meals and activities are communal, every minute is planned, everything is super highly supervised. 
And kids spent their days doing like military drills, collective farm work, learning technical skills, participating in various committees. And they were also encouraged to report on each other and publicly criticize each other in this very prescribed Soviet way. And that was the design, right? But the reality of camp life was often way more relaxed by the 1960s and especially outside of like the big cities because there were camps inside of cities as well. Kids and, and the parents who volunteered often really looked forward to like getting out of their crowded apartments and spending time in a rural area with like fresh air and less surveillance because you're farther away from the big cities. Um, and apparently for the, the parents who volunteered, it kind of had a reputation as like a sexy adventure in this environment of, of relative freedom. But the camps are still intended to prepare kids for the great communist future, which is one of discipline and hard work and ideological correctness. But in, in Welcome or No Trespassing, what we see instead is a camp as a model of actual Soviet society in the sense that like our brave disruptive heroes in the film are really reflecting this kind of groundswell of creativity and independence and transgression that was really bubbling up in the early sixties when this film was made. So I feel like the, the film is an allegory. It's a way of showing real life in miniature instead of the prescribed future in miniature. And of course, this is a really risky thing to do for a director, especially in your first film. And if it weren't for like a last minute intervention from the leader of the Soviet Union, who is about to be ousted, this film would never have come out. And instead, it's an enduring classic. Yeah, we should talk about the, the Khrushchev influence on this film, because what he was on his way out, correct? 64 was like a pretty unfortunate time to be a young director releasing a satire because there was like a conservative change in the air. And the Central Committee is like explicitly advising this Studio Moss film to focus on films that show Soviet triumph. And the director's like outraged that Klimov's film doesn't reflect uh, youth's leading role in industry. And he's threatening to like stop hiring all these young subversive writers and directors. Klimov knew his film was at risk while he was making it. And he kept just, he said he kept spending like as much of the budget as possible because the more he spent, the less likely the studio was to shut him down. And so he's like on location, he's at the camp, he's on the Black Sea coast, and he gets a telegram saying like the production has to stop, the whole film unit has to return to Moscow and account for themselves. But by then, most of the film was completed, and the two screenwriters like went back to Moscow and played for time rewriting the script, while Klimov actually quickly shot the rest of the film. There's a lot of objections throughout different stages. Like when you're when you're making a Soviet film, every stage of production, every like revision of the script needs to be censored. Um, and one objection early on was that there weren't enough appealing, upstanding adults. Concessions are made, but the film gets completed and they're not going to release it. What is this, right? But apparently Khrushchev saw a copy somehow. He had it screened for himself and he really liked it. He thought it was super funny. And he was like, why isn't this in cinemas? So they threw him a bone and they gave it a really limited release of, I think, 25 copies. And despite only, I think, 25 prints of the film going into cinemas, about 13.4 million people saw it. And some critics found it really frivolous and really ludicrous. Others were like, this is anti-Soviet uh, because they thought that <laughs> there's a costume competition that they thought mocked Khrushchev's corn campaign. Uh, but a lot of... <laughs> How dare you, right? They might have had a point. Yeah. <laughs> I totally, yeah. He's yeah. not known for his great his great policies, Christian. But yeah, a lot of filmmakers spoke up for Klimov's defense. I got obsessed with the opening title credits. 
I was like, something's wrong with me. I'm writing like a page of notes on these credits, but it's so in the credits, we see the fence of this young pioneer camp and the word welcome is huge and carnivalesque. And it's right at the top of the fence, like in a rainbow shape. So everyone can read it from a distance. So the camera looks up at this welcome and then it tilts down so that we see or in a little spy peephole in the fence. And then it tilts farther down to see no trespassing sign right at the eye level of a child. And to me, it's so perfect because we see this big gaudy welcome sign, just like the welcome sign that the Soviet Union is projecting to the rest of the world in the 1960s. Like after decades of Stalinist suspicion and repression, the state is now super welcome to foreign students and workers and tourists. And it's showing foreign films and it's publishing some foreign work, very, you know, very censored and very selective. But it was determined to show itself off to the rest of the world as this prosperous, metropolitan, technologically groundbreaking post-war victor, right? But this image of this big welcome sign contrasts so much with this tightly supervised life of conformity and these often very meager living conditions for most ordinary Soviet citizens. I think welcome or no trespassing is actually the perfect name to show Soviet hypocrisy in the 60s. And, and the opening credits show up against this fence and suddenly a plank in front of us is wrenched loose and the camera slides through the opening. And that's how we, the audience, get to enter the camp. So from the word go, our point of view is really mediated to align with that of a kid breaking the rules. So right yeah, away- You're trespassing. Yeah, right away, we're identifying with the rebel too. And I think that's really important. <laughs> yeah. And you get to see those propaganda posters. When the board opens, there's all these propaganda posters inside. And yeah, that's when we see the statues. And I was just amazed at how long the credits went on for. The army of the statues who are whitewashed and they're very generic, right? Because they're all collective and there's very little individuality. And then that's contrasted, like you said, Mike, with these great faces on these extras. And each one is kind of, you know, smiley, grubby, elderly. Each each one has like a very lived in individual character. And that's such a nice contrast with the white statues, I thought. Because they're like, they're, it's the army of caretakers. They're like, you know, washing the floors and sewing, I don't know, sewing sheets and doing laundry and stuff like that. Some of it. It almost looks like they were doing it in time when the women are mopping. It almost looks like they're, they're raking. I can't remember which, but it almost looks like they're, they're choreographed, like it's going to be a musical. Mm, yeah, because the, the score at that point is this militaristic march, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very regimented. Oh, speaking of signage, again, because it's so key to the to the film, on the reverse side of the door, there's also a sign saying no unauthorized exit which is very very biting with the whole thing of like the soviet union would only let you go on foreign trips if they trusted you not to defect yeah and it's so funny how when kostya escapes through he cuts a hole in the little like the fence in the water which i think is just a volleyball net that they use to like pull the kids out of the water what the the intellectual pe teacher is like oh, he's defected and you're just like yep that big hole that they—I <laughs> mean—that boy could fit through there. Like probably ten of him could fit through that <laughs> hole. <laughs> Comically large. It's almost like a like like a porthole uh, that a cartoon character would escape through. Yes. Yeah, it's so cartoony. Yeah. 
We've used the word biting so many times because it is true. This is just openly mocking authority. And I, I love it. I mean, it's just all of the rules you're talking about, how everything is regimented. We've, we start with this, uh, well, we start with the camp, which is amazing to see the, the way that this is laid out and to see the kind of daily routine. But pretty soon thereafter, we join a whole group of kids that are out on the beach and they have this very particular swimming area, this, uh, net that is being held by these very bored, uh, instructors and they're supposed to go out there. And I'd love the, the there's the one woman who is, trying to count the people that are in the water. And meanwhile, there's a young girl behind her who is just counting the shoes. It's, you know, this whole idea of like the young girl is way smarter than the adult. And that's just going to come through this film over and over and over again. Yeah. It's worth jumping in to, to point out that the junior leadership of the camp are Komsomol members. So they are the next level up in age of the communist youth league so this is part of their preparation for leadership positions is that they is they're essentially the next rung down from the leader of the camp and kind of making sure that things are regimented and ordered but in this film one of the main sympathetic adult or young adult characters is is it vera or valia i think it's valia yeah she is the leader of the group of kids that Inich Kid is, is part of, and she's very much like speaking up for him, but we'll come back to that later, I'm sure. Yeah, because over on the hill, watching all of this activity is Comrade Zadinian, the director of the camp, and man, oh man, he, he is just this little tyrant who wants control of everything, and he's probably one of the best villains. I mean, I, I know... Um, Ali, you compared Inuchkin to Bart Simpson. I mean, <laughs> our director is very much Principal Skinner. It is that whole... Am I so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. That's the whole through line to this film. In that scene, that first time we see Dean, and he's at the top of the hill. He's in a far distance, gazing down at a kid swimming through binoculars. Like, it couldn't get any more surveillance, right? But he's, he's wearing all white... And there are birds flying around his head. And some critics draw analogies between the framing of Dinan and the framing of Stalin in Stalin's films, in films that feature Stalin. But we see Dinan as like this kind of messianic, all-seeing figure. And it definitely fits that interpretation in the first shot. But then it's a comedy, right? So he's immediately revealed to be like this sniveling middle manager. What you were saying about class divisions too, like Ali, like I think it really makes sense in that scene where Mitrofanova is counting the shoes. Because this is supposed to be a classless society, but in fact, there are always haves and have-nots, and we get introduced to that right away in this film. We see the middle class, the young pioneers, the members of the Communist Youth League who are overly supervised. They're swimming in this tiny pocket of sea. Um, and then the lower class, we have the untouchables from town who the young pioneers aren't allowed to associate with. And they're, they're able to you know, swim freely and kind of do whatever they want under the radar. And then there's the upper class, even among the kids. One girl has this special status in the camp. She's allowed to count the shoes. And she's she's the niece of this big shot in the Communist Party, Comrade Mitrofanov. Later on, we see the kids in the canteen. And this one skinny little privileged girl has four lunches. <laughs> it's just like, come on. 
Yeah, that little tiny area. They've got the entire beach, but they just give them that tiny area where they're just pressed in there like sardines. And meanwhile, Inochkin manages to escape. I love when they pull the net out and there's this huge hole in it. Manages to escape and swim over to the island with those untouchable kids. And we should say, too, that Inochkin, this kind of goes away as the movie goes on, but he's given a voiceover at the beginning. So he's given the authority of the narrative. Even so far as he talks to the camera, there's one part where the camera's looking at the wrong person. He's just like, no, please, camera, come over here. This is the person I'm talking about. And we get that right at the very end as well, someone addressing the camera. Uh, but I really appreciate that um, Inochkin has that power and that we get to see this is going to be a story about this kid. He's the one in charge of what is going to happen in this narrative. And this scene is a very good example of the way this film creates laughs through editing because we see all these joyous shots of kids splashing around in the water and having a great time and then it cuts to a wide shot of this tiny little area that they're netted in <laughs> and it shows that the whole you know, like the whole rest of the beach is free and they're in this little tiny pocket and it's it's just so brilliantly done because it's literally just a cut it's a really good example of how you can make things funny, not just through dialogue, you know, which uh, I feel like modern comedy filmmakers could learn from. There's me wagging my finger. I love this beach scene. It might be my favorite scene in the film because it's just like we get this really chaotic montage shot of the kids in the water. They're thrashing around. There's disjointed body parts and these images are mixed up with like shots and snippets of conversation from the doctor and the squad leaders on land. And then collaged into this, we get Kostya's uh, introduction to the camp and he's introducing all the adults. And there's this really chaotic tinny piano score that sounds like the score of a silent film. And to me, like all of this exultant editing, this mishmash, is a nod to experimental Soviet filmmakers of the 20s, like Sergei Eisenstein, who created collisions of images and associations to like wake up the audience and encourage revolution. And in this case, I think Ellen, Ellen Klimov is, is waking up the audience out of its humdrum adult complacency because he's asking it, like you say, Mike, to identify with this young rebel. And there, there are like references to the 20s everywhere. Like there's the use of fast forward and the kind of raw frenetic joy reminded me of Ziga Vertov. And also we see these like these kind of experiments in early sound comedies shine through in this film. Like one time the, the camp director, no, it's the camp doctor. She opens her mouth to scream and the noise of a siren comes out. And there, there are title cards in this film and the Charleston is this hot new dance. I feel like this is an allusion to the fact that like artistic experimentation had been snuffed out for about three decades before this film was made during the Stalin era. And so Soviet art had kind of frozen in place in the 20s and late 30s. And now in the early 60s, artistic vibrancy is reawakening and, and some surviving older intellectuals are working to introduce their protégés, including young Klimov, to artists from the 20s who had been killed or exiled under Stalin and written under history, out of history, rather. So in the 60s, we have this big like reclaiming of the culture of the 20s for people who are encountering it for the first time. And yeah, there's also that reference to Mayakovsky later in the film. But yeah, I thought that was a nice, a nice touch. That shot of the doctor when she opens her mouth and it's the siren, that doctor a few times with that particular shot and there was another one i think it might be on the beach scene 
I was so reminded of the old lady who gets her face smashed, the one with the glasses from the Odessa Step sequence in Potemkin. So I'm so glad that you brought up Eisenstein. That camp doctor, Lydia Smirnova, she was apparently a famous theater actress and a hardcore party member who had won a, a Stalin Prize in 51. Yeah. And the character she's playing is absolutely ridiculous. She is so terrified of infections. And there's that whole thing about disinfecting things that goes through this whole movie as well. She's a great character. Yeah, it's like talking about the purge without actually talking about the purge. I wonder if she was in on the joke, though. Like, I wonder if she did she know she was in a comedy? Klimov, I think he was in his late 20s or very early 30s when he he made this straight out of film school. This may have even been his dissertation film. Who are his teachers? Well, they are the elder statesmen of Soviet film, many of whom are survivors from the 1920s who were teaching at Vgeek all the way through the decades following the 1920s, but they often couldn't get films made because of the way censorship and the, the way that the film industry in the Soviet Union ground to a halt. But they were teaching, and and so their techniques, even though they weren't actually coming out onto the screen, they were sharing them with, as you said, Jana, their, their protégés at film school. Mikhail Rom, who is who is Klimov's uh, mentor, he really encouraged independent thinking, and he was really eager to support young filmmakers because, like a lot of the older surviving intelligentsia, he really believed in the potential of the younger generation who had kind of grown up without Stalin's totalitarianism and were too young to be like completely affected by the war. Um, and he actually, Rom actually had like this this mini studio within the State Film Institute where he could kind of foster young talent, but it was quickly shut down. But yeah, Klimov just just managed to squeeze by. I should say before we go on, you guys are going to have to fill in a lot of holes for me because the version I watched of this had probably some of the worst subtitles I had ever seen. I mean, it was rough, and I tried to find a few other subtitle files, and I found one that looked a little bit better, but it was out of sync, and I tried to sync it up, and it was one of those like PAL NTSC type things where just forget it. You know, the frame rate is always going to be off. And this one, it was very important. At least the subtitles I had were timed correctly because it's very important. Some of these jokes are so hinging on dialogue and the dialogue comes pretty fast, but the dialogue could have been translated a lot better. So like rather than comrade Dinan, it was Dinan partner. (laughs) And this whole thing, they kept talking about, I I guess towards the end of the film, we get to like a parent's day type of thing, but they just kept calling it father's day. The doctor was like thinking about father's day terrifies me. And I'm like, okay, why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Cause I imagine what happens at the end. And I know I'm jumping way ahead, but I just want to kind of make sure that I'm clear. We are building toward this big end of the camp presentation gala all the parents are coming see what the kids have done over the summer i mean it's very again it's very much like american summer camp with this whole idea of coming to pick up the kids and seeing all of the stuff that they've been up to yeah parents day they're supposed to be showing feats of physical strength uh, but in- instead the pe teacher is this like nervous intellectual 
Comrade Dean in the camp director comes by and he's like, right, show me the human pyramid. And so the PE teacher's like, human pyramid, everyone. <laughs> it's really experimental. Like the kids all bend over it to create this optical illusion of depth when in fact, like it requires absolutely no strength whatsoever. The PE teacher's like, well, what do you think? And Dean is like, oh, it's, it's expressive. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's exactly what you said, Mike. Inochkin gets caught being out on this island after we see the butts of the <laughs> the local boys and then him. And that's when we get to know that he's our narrator. He kind of looks at us and there's this shot that we're going to have one more time in here of a boy blowing a bugle in front of a sign. Can either of you guys shed light on what was going on with that? The film really opens with the sound of bugles and drums that kind of bloom into this full military march that gets really, really loud and grating as the opening credits continue. And this, I think this introduces a key theme in the film, which is the state's attempts to regiment childhood. And that's really what this film kind of teases and explodes. The bugles and the, the statues uh, are really just meant to show like this is what the state wants childhood to be. It wants it to be very militaristic. And that's contrasted with Costia's uh, interference and, and rebellion and i think the sign that the bugler is standing in front of is a timetable for the day's activities so again it goes back to that theme of regimentation and everything is planned and must go according to plan and Inochkin has broken the plan how dare you swim outside of that little tiny box so he's the rebel and he gets publicly shamed in the square yeah, he's, he's got a show trial, little <laughs> Costia. And it's also, it's not his first offence. He, he, there's been a couple of things he's done which were bad in the past. The first one was, on the very first day, he was picking up sticks and fencing with them, and then all the other kids did it. And then also, he was using his torch or flashlight under the covers to read a book. And then all the other kids were reading, says Dinin. And we don't want the kids reading things because, you know, they might get ideas. Certainly not at night under the covers. But, but and it's funny because Kostya isn't even listening. He's looking at a small plane flying overhead. And then we see Valia, the worried camp squad leader, kind of watching him to make sure he's okay. And then she follows his gaze and starts looking up at the plane too, ignoring the speech. And this is one very small moment where we kind of glimpse the broader message of the film, which is like independence and nonconformity are a threat to the state because they're contagious, right? Just as the doctors worried that Kostya might have picked up an infection, we see this one kid, his independence and his creativity kind of unlocking these things for everyone else and reminding other people too that they have agency, that they can look at what's interesting, that they can figure out clever ways to get what they want. Dinin, during this whole, as you say, show trial, dresses down third squad that Inichkin is part of and that Valia is leading for not standing to attention and he specifically calls out the second squad as setting a good example he's basically like why aren't you behaving like second squad it's way more succinct than that but uh, he's very much like these are the good examples be like them and this is what will happen to you if you step out of line <laughs> Nochkin is a cancer that needs to be cut out of this camp. So they put him on the back of a truck with a whole bunch of milk cans and send him off. This montage, oh my God, of him imagining what will happen when he tells his grandmother that he's been kicked out of camp. I, I this, love it so much. That sequence, it's amazing. And the whole thing with the voiceover and him saying what she's going to say before she says it. I mean, 
it's funny, we just talked about Pootie Tang recently, and there's a scene in that that is almost exactly the same where Trucky is saying what he's about to say as he's saying it to Pootie Tang. And this is exactly the same with the way that he predicts what will happen with his grandmother and that the shock will kill her. And yeah. when she falls and immediately is like montage, boom, cut, coffin, boom, cut, lid to it with all of the elephants on the <laughs> the lid of the the trunk uh, the the coffin i loved it and then he imagines he's at his her funeral and he's like walking with his suitcase with his head down and then behind him is a group of grown group of grown-ups holding a banner that says why did you kill grandma (laughs) 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 the camera camera pulls out and you see that the whole funeral procession has just formed a question mark and the period or the full stop in the question mark is the coffin (laughs) it's it's just fantastic visual it's, it's so great also the thing i spotted on this watch that i hadn't noticed before is when i guess he's the camp janitor or odd job guy who's dropping inichkin off at the station but has to leave him because otherwise the milk will go he asks inichkin a couple of questions he's, he's like who's going to meet you at the other end and Inishkin says, Grandma. And the janitor says, oh, uh, is she doing okay? Is she healthy? And Inishkin confirms. And he says, okay, yeah, she'll probably live. And that whole idea of her dying is kind of implanted by that exchange. The possibility of the shot killing her is just because of this little interaction. And it's brilliant little commentary on how kids' minds often work and how they take completely offhand comments that ad- adults make and turn them on their head and, and take them in weird imaginative directions. It's a brilliant bit of writing. It's so funny because we just talked about the song uh, Orkakocha, I think it is, right? Black Eyes, Dark Eyes, uh, when we talked about My Man Godfrey last month for Screwball Month, and here's that song again as it's the funeral dirge as they're going through. And yeah, when it came to that question mark, I was just like, this is some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen. This is just so much fun. It's so much fun. And there's so much there too. Like this whole having a teenager be like, oh, I know just what you're going to say. Like that's just a classic grumpy teenager trope. But even showing this level of snarkiness of generational conflict could get you in such hot water because it was a real problem for authorities in the early 60s. Because for the first time, the Soviet Union has three generations and they all have very different experiences of what being Soviet meant. And they were impacted by different things. And so there is the sense among the authorities that like, if you show any generational conflict on screen, this could lead to wider revolt as was happening elsewhere in the world. So they were really eager to keep it under wraps. And like later on, we see the young squad leader Valya argue with Dinin, who is of the Stalinist generation above her. And she she wants a new costume. She has new ideas for skits. And Dinin is completely resistant to any change. So that's something, this, this kind of generational conflict is something this film really doesn't shy away from. This film is kind of unique in the Soviet canon because it suggests that just being in authority shouldn't translate into unquestioning loyalty. This film suggests that like respect needs to be earned by actions, not conferred by rank. The most important relationships in the film like form horizontally among peers rather than vertically up the chain of command. And so that's not exactly generational conflict. I don't know what to call it, but it, it's also quite new for, for Soviet cinema to be showing that. When I was watching that montage, I was reminded a little bit of Lasse Hellstrom's My Life as a Dog. 
And then when he comes back to camp and Ochkin decides, no, I can't go back home. It'll kill my grandmother. He sneaks back into camp. And that's around the time where uh, he, he hides under the main platform of the square. There's a dog that comes along and pees on the, the platform. And the dog's name is Cosmos, right? And there's like this whole space race thing that's going on in here. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, there's the dog uh, Leica that got shot into space and had no way of getting home. And I'm just like, is that why I thought of my life as a dog? It was just kind of a weird thing. But this whole thing of him returning to the camp, it so reminded me of the metaphor of what snowball returning to camp in um animal farm and just this threat of you know snowball coming back in and and destroying things and them using snowball or trotsky as an excuse for so much of the early days of the revolution and it's a really scary moment too when he comes back into the camp because there's there's single sourced lighting on all of these whitewash whitewashed statues of young pioneers and so like one side of them's completely black, one side's completely white. And then we see Kostya, like he's all elbows and knees. He's just a skinny little kid with big eyes. And he's kind of got his suitcase and he's like hunched and like scurrying back into the camp. And then the, the statues twist and they like play their instruments at him or they shoot their bow and arrow at him. And it's genuinely so scary. In that moment, like you're used to thinking of him as this kind of self-assured Bart Simpson, but he just seems like such a vulnerable little kid. And and the, the actor who plays Kostya just, he's got this really funny, sad clown deadpan comic face of a much older man but on this tiny little body with these big elbows and knees and it's it's just so fun it's just such good casting and it's such a real moment of pathos when he's running from the statues and that drum roll that the drummer statue gives it definitely sounds like the drum roll before a you know a medieval or early modern execution He's seen it in so many, in, you know, even like the Robin Hood Disney film. <laughs> yeah, that was so scary. And we've got the title card. That's how Anochkin became illegal. The kids are not startled or surprised or anything that Anochkin is back. And they immediately all go to work for him. And just they're all about protecting him completely. It's, it doesn't feel like anybody is against him. And it's pretty soon thereafter that we've got the kid who's crawling uh, under the legs of the table and everyone is giving little pieces of food so that Inochkin has something to eat. And I, I love that it is just so seamless as far as like, all right, Inochkin's here. We just need to do this. And everyone pitches in. This is the most collective action of the film is all of these kids just being like, yep, yeah, no problem. I'll, here's a little bit of my food. Take it. And that's the massive irony is that you get this collective solidarity and like communal mentality in the face of <laughs> draconian oppression by the leader. <laughs> right. Yeah. Loyalty and collective action in this film really flower and blossom outside of authority, like in opposition to authority. The idea is like if we were just left to ourselves, if there weren't so many rules and regulation and supervision, we would actually be quite a harmonious people. I love that first moment where we get to see the kids interacting on their own, where the two, the girl and the boy and the dog Cosmos 
discover Kostya hiding under the platform because they like the kids in this film they're just they're so far they're so smart and they're so funny but they're also kind of solemn and they they're very independent of the adults and they have their own society and they have their own moral code and it just reminded me a little bit of the Peanuts films and I I looked it up in the first Peanuts film a TV special called The Charlie Brown Christmas it premiered like a year after uh, this film in 64 the difference between Charlie Brown and Kostya Nochkin is that Charlie Brown always remains isolated. Like he always feels misunderstood. He's this big frustrated ego where in the Soviet version, like you're saying, like the kids band together, like good communists, even when their purpose is to thwart authority. I love those kid microcosm of society films. Even the little string quartet of these four kids, all with these thick glasses and you've got the one is a viola player who covers for and well all four of them are covering for Inochkin, but the viola player who turns his viola such that Inochkin can hide behind it as they all walk over to the latrine so he can do his business and then all walk back all under the gauge of Conrad Dinian, who is just talking about how great this music is, completely clueless. I mean, these are good, upstanding Soviet citizens who are enjoying the arts and playing this great music. And meanwhile, they're hiding in Ochkin and letting him use the restroom. Is this when we get the first appearance of the snitch? Like we see a, a close-up of like a little girl's shoes and we hear like mischievous tuba on the score and the shoes pause like she's watching something and then the shoes like scamper up to a door and it opens and closes and we see that it's camp director Deenan's office it's this little girl I think at this point she's telling on the kids sneaking the meatballs away having an ally for the camp director be a kid and having Kostya's squad leader speak up for him it kind of drives home for me the point that like this film isn't really about kids versus adults it's like about people who look out for one another and then people who betray each other to ingratiate themselves with authorities higher up the chain of command. And we see this later when like Dinan sucks up to the, the party big shot Mitrofanov and when one of Kostya's friends turns on him um, to save his own position. But I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah, because the adults here, the younger adults, they all cover for him as well. There's another part later on where they realize what's going on with him and bring him this huge thing of soup. And it's what four adults underneath that little platform <laughs> just barely can fit in there. And then Dean finds them and thinks that they're all just a bunch of drunks. And that's such a nice scene because once they realize that they're all hiding and they all finally have privacy, they start shit talking Dean. And it's like, once again, Kostya has made room in this world for dissent in his own way. It's all that Inochkin. He's such a bad influence. So that kid with the net, though, I'm, I love that running gag of him. And it took me a couple times to realize that he was a running gag. My God, the face on this kid and just the way he holds his mouth. And I think he's got the number 13 on the back of his shirt, but I could be wrong about that. So I was just calling him 13 in my notes. And he just always is coming up going, hey, guys, what's going on? And everybody just turns on this poor kid. They're just like, get away. Get out of here. He's got the last line in the film, which I like. That is nice of the director and the editor to kind of like throw him a bone like that. He is the butt of the jokes the whole way through. And as you say, just the face, like he just has this. He's like an Alfred E. Newman type, you know, just this 
gormlessness. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And nobody likes him. And it's totally unexplained because it's not like it's not like he's mean. It's just he's just a bit dim. I didn't get the whole thing with the nettles. What was going on? Because at first I thought it was corn that they were running through, but there are a bunch of boys and they all strip down to nothing and run through these nettles. In the boys' like sleeping quarters, a group of Costia's friends worry what will happen when Costia's grandma arrives at Parents' Day and she can't find him. And they decide that they need to cancel Parents' Day. And one ridiculously cute kid has an idea. And so we then see them like outside by the fence leading away from the camp. And they draw straws. And one boy gets the short straw and he's like super hesitant. And as if he's going to the gallows, he goes through a loose board in the fence and he runs towards some bushes of stinging nettles and they all strip off and jump in the nettles. And the idea is that they all kind of jump into the nettles in their own way. Like one boy like breaks off a branch and starts like delicately whipping himself, which I just thought was a really weird touch. Like, like even in this one activity that everyone doesn't want to do, it's, it's creative and it's in, it's individual rather than um, collective triumph. And that reminded me of the Banya in, <laughs> in, in, <laughs> oh, right. in Russia and the Soviet Union, because uh, he's even got the hat. So the Banya is, it's like sauna, but it's different. It's its more kind of steam orientated, and it has this whole culture around it. And one of the things that you do while you're in the Banya is that you, I'm going to totally butcher this now, but there's a certain type of like twig with leaves that you essentially you whip yourself with or you get one of your the people you're there with to do it for you because it's meant to be like exfoliating and opening out the pores and there's some some property of the leaves that's meant to be good for you but yeah he's he's essentially doing that with the stinging nettle (laughs) if they have these welts from the nettles then they're going to go to the doctor and the doctor's going to think there's an epidemic because Kostya has spread it from the local kids. And then if there's an if there's an epidemic, Parents' Day will be cancelled. So Kostya's grandma won't come and, and be disappointed. It's a brilliant ruse. And actually, the first kid who's going to go into the stinging nettles, he's like, oh, do I have to take the underpants off too? And the other kids are like, do you think that whatever the disease is, like won't be on your butt as well. He's like, okay, fine. Yeah, he's like, they're like, it's not like getting a tan mutter. And then at the same time, we see the little snitch shoes show up and we hear her little voice say, interesting, and then she walks away. So we know that trouble's a brewing. And they all pretend to be deathly ill <laughs> in that whole sequence where they're just writhing and shaking. And, <laughs> and of course, in the dark, yeah, the kid is barking like Laika. They're just, yeah, really putting it on. And the doctor is just eating up with a spoon because she knew that infection was going to be here. There's that scene earlier where there's all the clothes that are on the ground and they're disinfecting the clothes. And it's funny because when they find the kids, the kids are laid out on the floor, on the ground, looking very much like those empty sets of clothes. But now they have the bodies going. And I like how, like, when the little boys are like, I'm so sick, like, they're all doing it in their own individual creative ways. Like, one kid's munching a plant, and the other one's having, like, war flashbacks, but it's it's a flashback to Moscow being burnt down by the French, which did happen, but it was during a reign by Napoleon. So it's like, what is this kid's memory? He's so cute. But that scene where they're disinfecting the 
the clothes. I think that's also when they're planning the costume parade for Parents' Day. One of the counselors is like, why can't the kids make their own costumes, like use their creativity? And Deanan's like, nope, they have to wear the costumes that have been approved. And everyone's like, but they've been circulating the camps for six years. And, and, and like, there's no real contest. Everyone knows that the person who gets the corn costume is going to win due to the party's emphasis on corn production. And everyone knows that the corn costume is going to go to Mitrofanova, the niece of the Communist Party big shot. So like all democratic trappings are just a lie. But I love it because the PE teacher is like holding up the bean pod costume and he's a skinny guy and he looks like a bean pod anyway. And he's like, why can't the bean pod win? And Demon's like, well, if the bean pod was meant to win, beans should have shown more initiative. Oh, and you talked about the experimental nature of it. This is around the part where, you know, when the, the doctor finds these kids sick, quote unquote, uh, she does that, you know, the, the siren coming out of her mouth. And then that starts this keystone cop sequence of all the nurses coming out with the stretchers and putting the kids on the stretchers and taking them away. I love that. And yeah, when that started, I was like, Oh my God, this movie has everything. He is just pulling out all the stops. And it's worth saying how popular Keaton and and Chaplin were in the in the Soviet Union. Yeah, the fact that this film has lots of nods to silent film and not just Soviet silent film is not surprising at all. Dinan really figures out or is told that these kids are uh, comedians and uh, that whole ruse is gone. We get the title card. It is clear they had not prevented, in my translation, Father's Day. And then there's this thing of somebody has bad blood and they need a transfusion. And there's a little sequence of Inochkin becoming blood brothers with uh, the director. The director, even though they're now sharing the same blood, he's like, you know, I can't allow you back into camp, right? Just to backtrack just a tiny bit, like Kostya's inside the platform and he's teaching himself card tricks, which is illegal at the camp because cards suggest gambling, which would be an unsanctioned way of making money. And Kostya, he overhears a discussion between his sympathetic camp counselor, Valya, and someone else. And she's like, she's been pushing Dean to let Kostya come back and to let her try some new ideas in the camp. And she's like, ah, Dean, and he's always saying the kids are the owners of the camp, but all we require from them is discipline. When in fact, all the important decisions are made without them. And she's complaining about this. And I was really struck by that line because that like that in a nutshell is Soviet dissent in the early sixties. A lot of young, like a lot of young people by and large didn't reject socialism, but they wanted to reclaim it from the horrors of the Stalinist and the Bolshevik past. They wanted socialism with a human face with fewer decrees from above, more representation for the ordinary person in decision-making, more personal responsibilities and personal choices. And there were some concessions, like it's only in the 60s, for example, that um, you have the option of changing jobs if you want to. But yeah, it seemed like that, there's this, that one throwaway line really summed up sort of the potential of socialism to be anything but totalitarian and brutal. But of course, that hope died after the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68. But anyway, the other counselor is saying like, Valia, like he's never going to let Kostya back. He made Dinan's blood boil. And then Kostya overhears that, that line about blood boiling. And he has this fantasy about what would happen if he'd boiled just one drop of Dinan's blood for real. But then he, he can swoop in as a hero and like give Dinan this life-saving blood transfusion because he has the same rare blood type as Dinan. 
and then he he like saves the day and it's Kostya's heroic face on all the posters. And then after the transfusion, Dinan's grateful, but he still won't let Kostya back into the camp. And I feel like that might, might be a sneaky message. Like you can literally bleed for those in power, but they still won't accept you if you have a tarnished record. Like this is this is only 20 years after the end of World War II, right? Which was followed by mass purges. So I don't know if that was a bit of dissent there. How does this poster come about? Because there's the poster that you mentioned the one friend kind of turning uh, his back on uh, Inochkin or, or kind of selling him out because he draws a poster and they liken Inochkin to an infection. There's a bacteria that looks like him. There's a thing in the Soviet Union called wall newspapers, and they were basically propaganda posters, but they had ostensible, they had headlines about who was betraying who. And so this poster says that one boy broke the rules. He swam out to swim with the locals and he brought infection back into the camp. And it says, shame on the transgressor. And then we see a drawing of like a little boy holding hands with little furry creatures labeled bacteria. <laughs> and everyone's gathered around and everyone's thinking like, yeah, it's definitely a Nochkin. But they all grin because everyone loves Kostya Nochkin. And then outside we see the little boy who went into the nettles first, Marat. He's sitting outside the locked door to the platform where Kostya's trapped inside. And he confesses to Kostya that it was he who made the posters when Dinan asked him to. And he's so ashamed and he's like... What could I do? Uh, after all, I'm on the editorial board and there's just like dead silence from Kostya. And you get a title card that's that's how Kostya Nochkin lost a friend. It's hard to like not keep harping on about how this film is a dissident satire. When we have these these models of like real Soviet situations, like informing and someone selling out his friend to preserve his own status and the friend ending up imprisoned, like this is a real thing. And, and if the scene has inv had involved adults, like it wouldn't have been allowed on screen or at least the incarcerated person wouldn't have been a hero. So it's just another example of this film, this film going there and still being funny. He doesn't get caught, but other kids that were under the platform with him, you know, you mentioned him uh, learning card tricks and uh, Dean and eventually finds that there are these kids under there and they're just like, Oh, we were uh, playing cards, which is a huge offense. So yeah, he locks up that door and then Inochkin becomes imprisoned for quite a while until they start to use a pig to, uh, <laughs> to dig under the, from the local village again. So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> there might be something to this whole thing of, uh, you know, Inochkin having uh, ties to these wild animals and, God, I, I love it. I love just how <laughs> they play into that. And poor kid is stuck under there and they can't even now get him food. So he starts to starve underneath the, the platform. And it's so funny, too, because when all these kids are crowded before he gets locked up, all these kids are crowded in the platform with him because they want to hang out with him and they want to inter inter invite him to the uh, the movie later that day. And then Dinan comes in and he crouches and he like he's like, everyone out. And then he sees that Mitrofanova, the niece of the party official, was in there too. And Dinan sort of squeaks. He gives this like startled, like, oh God. And then he, so he doesn't know what to do now because he, he doesn't know how hard to punish them because she's with them. And he, so he starts sort of verbally shaming them. But at the same time, he's like smiling at Mitrofanova and doing these little shuffly card tricks for her at the same time, like playing up to her. And it's just like this film takes every opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of the person in power and the way that he's spineless and obsequious. There's a scene at the beginning when they're smuggling the meatballs out and Dinan is like, 
walking around trying to get people to volunteer talents to show at Parents' Day. And he's trying to get them to say stuff. He's like trying to rally them to say things. And um, and then one kid speaks out of turn and then he's like, what's the rule, kids? And then they're like, when we're eating, we are all deaf and dumb. And it's just like, he's just so hypocritical. And that slogan is is even on the, on the wall as well. Yeah, there's the kid who wants to do card tricks. He wants to do magic. And I think that was really shut down pretty hard when uh, he said that he wanted to do magic for his talent. And we should say one of the things that Valia, again, gets herself in trouble with is that she's trying to get her troupe to recite a Mayakovsky poem. That's a weird one because Mayakovsky was a poet whose career straddled either side of the revolution and he was very much a true believer who did after the soviets took power did kind of butt heads with them but he was very 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 popular in the soviet union but the issue that dinin has with his poem which is it's called uh, left march is the fact that it references adam and eve and He's like, Adam and Eve, uh, no, no, better not. He's like, in what grade do they study Mayakovsky? Like, if it's not part of the official curriculum, it's not acceptable. I want to say it's around this time, too, where they start talking about weight and how much weight the children have gained, because I imagine that's very much a sign of them being successful is feeding the kids enough. And I was with, again, with the subtitles, I was not able to follow everything that they were talking about with all the weight of the kids. Dinan and the camp doctor are tallying up the kids' weights, but they do it collectively rather than individually. So they're, they're reporting the weight of each squad, even though they're measuring the weight kid by kid. And it just seems like a joke about the Soviet emphasis on the collective over the individual. And the figures that they're reporting are ridiculous. Like he's like, there, there's like at most 10 kids in each squad, right? But Dinan's like, oh yeah, squad two will reach one ton by the end of the season. <laughs> You're like, what? This just speaks, I think, to like the magical thinking of Soviet data reporting and and the state's demands for inhuman overperformance. I've wondered when they were like, oh, yeah, they, they've gained a thousand kilograms. I'm like, wait a second. Now, we use imperial measurement over here, and I know that a thousand kilograms is a lot. So I'm just <laughs> like, what the hell is going on here? And yeah, I didn't pick that up, that they're adding each individual person to the collective that's amazing because yeah they're just like you know rattling that off and got the uh old time adding machine going on there there's also talk later on about the weight and that the numbers aren't adding up or something and it was just like wow this is wild how they uh, are so concerned about reporting good numbers and i'm sure that these numbers probably go to the authorities during this process dean stumbles across Inichkin's record and pulls it out and tears it up. It's like, well, get rid of that. And of course, the reason that De- uh, that uh, Inichkin's former squad are underweight is because they've been sequestering part of their food ration in order to feed Inichkin in his like illegal status. <laughs> At this point, it's when Valia comes in and she's figured out that Costia is hiding inside the platform or locked inside the platform. And she's like, we think she's going to tell Dinan and she's like ready to do it, but he won't give her a chance to speak. He just berates her because her, her squad hasn't gained any weight. 
But it's also another beautiful moment of Dinan's hypocrisy, right? He blames Valia for the trash her kids read, and he pulls out a magazine that he confiscated it. But even when he's yelling at her, he starts flipping through the magazine, and he just gets increasingly captivated by the women in it. Like he only really looks up and starts talking to her again when he hears her crying with frustration, and then we never know whether she would have informed on her kids or not because Dinan's kid snitch gets there first and tells Dinan that Inochkin's in the camp and he's at the at the movie that they're showing. I love this whole thing of them censoring the movie while the kids are watching it. It's okay for the kids to watch the action scenes. I mean, it's just like the United States. Yeah, It's fine for them to watch the action scenes, but when the kissing starts, how the staff holds up a card so that the image gets projected. And I love this too. The image gets projected onto the card and then all the adults lean in <laughs> and are watching that. And then once the kissing is over, they allow the card to go back down and uh, the kids to see more of the action stuff from this, um, I guess it's a uh, swashbuckling uh, French film. So kind of, I guess, maybe ties back into the whole French-Russian uh, conflict that you mentioned before. Yeah, it's Fun Fun La Tulipe from 1952, starring Gina Lillibrigida. <laughs> Which I have to say, I've never seen. <laughs> I've also never seen it. I like that we get to see, like, Klimov makes sure that we see the scene, though. Like, he's not going to censor anyone's experience. This film is so good, but the scene in particular is so good because we just spend so much time like watching just out of their minds excitement on the kids' faces, including little Kostya's. And he's there watching it secretly with his friends. And it's just like, it's just a moment of pure joy in a film where you really can't believe that anyone's acting. It's as if Klimov is saying like, look how much power for good a filmmaker has when they're allowed to be exciting, right? And they're allowed to give people what they want instead of the propaganda they should want. Yeah, and the fact that it's a swashbuckler calls back to the thing that one of Inichkin's offences was fencing with sticks on the very first day. So I love that there's that little callback. And it's cool, too, because Victor Kosich, I think, is the name of the actor who plays Kostya Nochkin. And he went on to star in a series of adventure films in the late 60s and 70s called The Elusive Avengers, about a posse of young red partisans in the Civil War. But I just love that because it's sort of like Kostya got to grow up and join the swashbuckler that he's watching in the camp. Makes me really happy. Eventually, the pig has dug under. Somebody calls for the door to be unlocked. And that's when uh, we've got the cook and a few of these other folks. And I, I really like the faces of these guys. The gym teacher in particular, uh, he's got a great face and just he's kind of long and just he's very interesting to look at. The cook's pretty interesting as well. And just these four adults go under the platform. I mean, the cook really cares for Inochkin. You can tell by the way that he's ladling the soup into this poor boy who's been starving under here. It's such a nice scene, and we talked about how they get caught now, and and the cook's got Enochkin behind his, basically behind his ass, and just because four adults under this, you know, this little tiny platform, we haven't said for the audience, I mean, it's just a tiny little thing. It's like, you would expect this to be almost like a torture place of like, you know, you're going in the hole, Luke, you know, like one of those kind of things. It's not a big place, but so to have these four adults in there, it's not a stretch to have them hiding uh, in Ochigan with the body. They're going to have a talking to the director. I think he thinks they're drunk and partying under there. Pretty soon thereafter, we switch to actually having the big day 
Yeah, it's kind of a fair kind of, you know, it's the whole parents coming to pick up the kids, all of the fanfare going on. And and Ochkin's grandmother is there, which is so nice that she manages to show up. And now I was a little confused. This must be the party official who comes in. They start at one point. There's a stage show and it's all about the space program, I believe. And they start to do this song and it that that's the party official who comes in and basically makes them start the song all over again. Is that correct? Mitrofanov, who's the party bigwig, I think he's already in the audience, but he's just taken a seat like near the back. And for Dinin, this is not acceptable that such an important guy could be sitting at the back. So he moves him forward and then we have to start the show again so Mitrofanov can enjoy the spectacle from the beginning. And everyone involved is just like, can we just, you know, carry on? But no. Dinan's in charge, and you have to put your best foot forward, and Mitrofanov has to enjoy the spectacle to the absolute best degree. So it's Yeah, it's just so cute, though, because the kids get really confused and their play goes adorably awry, like all the planets start orbiting in the wrong direction and stuff. Mitrofanov, first of all, is like, what? what? Like He's like really confused about why he's getting this special attention, and he kind of comes off as this really normal, humble guy who doesn't want to fuss made about him. During the skit, Dinan whispers to him proudly, like, did you know Yuri Gagarin sang this song on his space flight? And, and Mitrofanov just looks at him like, you really believe that shit? Like, come on. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a withering look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is maybe where the film is quite canny, in that it's portraying the higher leadership as like being normal and clued in and smart and responsible. Whereas the middle managers, they're the ones who are just like ruining it for everyone. But the people who are higher up, they know what's going on. So it's, you know, it feels like the film might be playing a little bit of a game with getting around censorship that way by saying it's not all the leadership. It's just some overzealous, misguided middle guys. Petty bureaucrats. Yeah, so the system works, and the people at the top are great, but it's the people below them, you know, just not always... A few bad apples. ...executing the ideals in the proper way. So you could say the film is a little bit having its cake and eating it with that, or maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't think so. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's something to setting this at a camp, too, because it's kind of like outside of reality. It's a little bit like in Carnival Night, which is probably like the most famous thought era comedy. It takes place on, at a party on New Year's Eve. And these young people are trying to put on a big stage show and a party for everyone who works at this one factory. But there's this little apparatchik who's like very stuffy and he wants to like undo all of their acts and like make the clown act much more conservative and change the orchestra for like much older people. And, and so then it's all about the kids like trying to undo his censorship in screwball comedic fashion. Um, but I think there's, like these early thought comedies can get away with it because they take place in special environments, right? It's not every day that we undo the work of the apparatchik. It's not every day that we undermine Dinan. It's on these special days, New Year's Eve and Parents' Day. I think I think that's another way to kind of get around how dissident your film is, if that makes any sense. It's worth saying as a little bit of trivia, Carnival Night and Welcome or No Trespassing were both edited by the same person, um, by Alexandra Kamagorova. So there's some connective tissue in terms of the production folks there. So may maybe that's why the editing works as well as it does on both of them. 
So Deenan breaks into the auditorium. He stops the film and he tries to find Kostya in the dark, but each kid kind of surreptitiously blocks his way in their own way. And so there's this kind of instinctive shared morality and unity among the kids. And it's not just his squad by this point, it's everybody trying to trip up Deenan. All of the kids eventually just get so frustrated that the film was stopped halfway that they start yelling and they get louder and louder and they want the film to come back on. And the excitement and the adventure of this film has just kind of like riled them to the boiling point to mutiny and they swarm around Dean in the dark. And this is the first time in the film when he loses ground, he gets really frazzled and he gets really overwhelmed and he eventually orders the projectionist to turn the film back on. And I just think that's just such a lovely moment to show the power of cinema. Like it's powerful enough to undo authority and to make kids forget how to behave toward a superior. And the film is just inspiring us to to revolt, essentially. And, and we have to remember that like this film is dedicated to adults as well as kids, right? This film is dedicated to adults who were once children. I read this as who were once imaginative and rebellious. And to children who will surely become adults. And I, I assume who will once who will eventually have power. I feel bad asking all these questions because I feel like I just didn't get parts of this film, but there's another part that I didn't get, which is after the cosmonaut song and before we get that shot of the boy with the bugle again, which is nice that we get that call back. We get somebody who's in the mud. I wasn't sure who is in the mud and all these kids kind of looking around. Is that the snitch that is in the mud? Yeah, Mara, the boy who drew the poster and who sort of betrayed Kosti, gets a chance to redeem himself while Dinan is showing Mitrofanov the play. So first of all, it's the snitch, the little snitch girl. We only see her from the ankles down, so we see her little shoes. And she spots a boy throwing the ear of corn costume over the camp fence. But when she runs to report this to Dinan, Mara chases after her. And we realize that it was a trap because all the kids from Squad 3 close in on this girl and we get this handheld shot of their running feet. And so the girl is kind of trapped and she slips and gets entirely covered in mud and squad three surrounds her and they don't do anything, but they all now know who she is. And she just walks away humiliated. How did I miss all that? You had terrible subtitles. I'm going to send you my file. After we get that shot again and the boy with the bugle, that's when we have the, the culmination of the big event. And now it is time for the, what is it? The queen of the harvest or the, the corn queen, basically the queen of the fields is what my uh, translation said. Now it is time for the queen of the fields to come in. And you mentioned before that airplane that distracted one of the the leaders. And we kind of get a call back to that again, because there's a signal that comes from the sky that she signals off to this boy and then he shoots something off into the sky and that then becomes like all right now it is time to open up the gates and in comes this big harvester that's all decorated and you've got all these kids in their costumes including the quote-unquote queen of the fields up on top uh, who's dressed in that corn cob and wouldn't you know it it's Zinochkin has made his triumphant return to the camp it is wonderful. And it just, that is the signal of, yeah, the director is completely unseated. And I, it, he's got this cake that he's trying to give to the party member. And the party member's just like, yeah, no, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's his 
scheme foiled again because the Corn Queen was supposed to be Mitrofanova. But once again, <laughs> the kids and the junior leaders at this point have conspired to uh, to derail his his ill advised plan. And Dean is speechless, and he doesn't know what to do. And Mitrofanova's just like. Hey guys, it's great weather. Let's go swimming. And all the parents are like, yay. And they follow him to the beach. And it's, it's kind of a callback to when they first entered the camp, we see these line of parents and they're, they've got like butterfly nets and hula hoops. And they're just like so excited to see their kids again, but they're also so excited to just have fun for a bit. And it's just like, it's hard to overstate how completely alien and refreshing and touching it is to see middle-aged adults just having fun in a Soviet film and having that fun be okay. Because for decades, adults on screen could only be exemplary heroes or villains. Like that's all you got. And here they're playing soccer and like the five dads are getting beaten at chest by a one seven-year-old with giant glasses. And like, I feel like this film is saying to the audience, like we're all craving freedom, the freedom of childhood. And what's irresponsible about that? Because the kids in this film are more morally sound than the adult in charge. So why not go play? Embracing the fun, embracing the fantasy, this whole thing of Enochkin running towards the beach and jumps from the beach all the way over onto that island where he got into trouble the first time. And then his grandmother doing the exact same thing with this, you know, we should say for the audience at home, that it's this process shot of, you know, here are all these people on this beach. And then you get grandma jumping and flying, quote unquote, over to the beach with Enochkin. And even uh, the, the, that goofy kid with the net, he gets to do the exact same thing. And yeah, he's the one who gets the last line of the film. He looks right up at the camera. The camera flies from one side over to the other. And then the kid stands up and he's, and he looks right at us, right at the camera. It's just like, what are you doing here? The film's over. And I just love it. I love this joy that, you know, you, you talked about how the parents are just so excited to go swimming. And this whole end of this film is just one of the most joyous things I've ever seen. And there's a big banner on the island that just says, welcome, right? It's no longer a hypocritical statement, welcome or no trespassing. There's no contradiction anymore. It's just it's just welcome. And you get one last shot of Comrade Dinan, and he is in that same truck with all those milk cans being driven back to, uh, quote unquote, civilization and gets to be a petty bureaucrat someplace else, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and he's in the position that he had put Inuchkin in earlier in the film, so there's some poetic justice there as well. This flying, it kind of freaked me out a little. Like, it made me a little bit sad because it made me feel like the film might ultimately be acknowledging that what it has shown us, this, like, joyful rebellion that unites kids and adults against authority, is a fantasy. Oh. 100%. Like, it could just be another one of Costia's fantasies, because he's our narrator. Like, maybe he dreamed this up. Like, maybe maybe it's the filmmakers acknowledging that they've jumped the shark a little and real life isn't this good. Yeah, it's the if-only moment. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It does feel like we have 100% entered that fantasy world. I mean, especially when Grandma jumps. <laughs> yeah! Oh, man, that was great. <laughs> Tell you what, though, it wouldn't be a Russian film if there wasn't a, an element of bittersweetness in the ending. <laughs> you can't have an un, unqualified hippie end. 
The amphibian man cannot stay with the landlocked girl. He must return to the ocean. Jana, I think you said that you, ha- you oh, you wanted to talk a little bit more about the director and his career. Yeah, I want to talk about Klimov because he's super important, especially because we're talking about Kirimuratova later in the month. Welcome or No Trespassing gets like a very limited release in 64. A year later, Klimov makes Adventures of a Dentist, which is about a dentist who has this magical ability to extract teeth without pain. Oh, I've heard about that film, but I haven't seen it yet. He's quietly shunned by his colleagues and patients because they mistrust any skill that makes a person stand out. So the censors were upset and ordered Klimov to change the ending because it suggested that Soviet society can't handle talented people. Klimov refused to change the ending, um, and as a result, his film gets one of the most limited releases possible. Then Klimov goes on to make Sport, 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 which is a really audacious collage of archival footage and staged mockumentary footage. And Klimov makes a few more films, including a Rasputin biopic that is also censored heavily. And actually, it's shelved as useless. In 1985, right at the beginning of Glasnost, which is this period of openness and reckoning with the dark past, one of Klimov's older films, a film that had been shelved for 10 years, finally gets released to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Nazis' defeat. And this is Come and See, and it's hugely successful, and it wins the Grand Prix at the Moscow International Film Festival, and it resonates with audiences, especially those who have been living with traumatic memories of the war, but of course, very little recognition of this in the state media. Come and See tells the story of this boy witnessing a massacre in his village, and then further atrocities of Nazi occupation as he flees his village. And by the time the boy finds other sympathetic people, he's become a traumatized adult. It's heralded as as this big glasnost opus at a time when the public is really reckoning with secrets of the Soviet past. So Klimov, this director who had been censored and shelved his entire career, finally gets the recognition that he needs to step into the spotlight. And he lights the way for other silence directors So in in like 86, I think he's elected president of the Soviet Filmmakers Union, and he spearheads widespread reforms to reduce the state's hold over the film industry. And one of his first official statements is, there must be no forbidden subjects. He's a key figure behind the creation of the Conflicts Commission, which is a board that reviews older films that had been banned or given really limited releases. It reassesses why these films had been hidden. And it's sort of, yeah, it's like a parole board hearing for individual films. And usually these are films that like challenge the Soviet mythology in some way. Either they showed corruption or difficult realities of daily life, or they showed existential crises where they were spiritual or uh, someone in the film defected, that kind of thing. So between the mid 80s and 1991, when the USSR collapses, this commission, this conflicts commission releases hundreds of these banned films. Um, And because of this, there's a resurgence of interest in Soviet cinema all over the world. So these films don't just get domestic releases, they get like these splashy international releases as well. And this resuscitates the career of three key Soviet auteurs, Alexei German, Kira Muratova, and Alexander Sokurov. In a way, we have Alan Klimov to thank for the fact that we've been able to talk about Alexei German on the show, and we can definitely thank his Conflicts Commission for releasing Brief Encounters and The Long Farewell, which are two films by Kira Muratova that we'll talk about later this month. Just weird trivia. He was invited to the Oscars and he was the first Russian elected to be the member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. 
and again on the trivia point it's it's worth mentioning that in his personal life uh, he was married to Larissa Shapitko who was also a very uh, august director I haven't actually seen any of her her films but yeah they were quite the power couple in terms of their their cinematic output she passed away in a car accident when she was shooting locations for what would be her final film and it was about a group of villagers on a remote island who refused to be relocated when the state decides to flood their island to accommodate a new dam and klimov finishes the film for her and it's called farewell and it's so good and it's it's really beautiful and the state bans it because it shows villagers in a spiritual relationship with nature and because the film is skeptical about the benefits of industrialization. It's such a sad film for so many reasons. But Shapika's amazing. Like her film Wings is really, really good. And she made The Ascent. And um, I think you and me. And yeah, she's really cool. You should check her out. I have not seen Come and See yet, just because I know it's supposed to be great, but I also know it's supposed to be just a gut punch of a film. And I just haven't had that wherewithal to be like, yeah, let's be sad today and watch Come and See. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, just read the news headlines today. Like, yeah, like it's, it's ooh, especially mm-hmm. these days, man. Yeah, I, I can confirm. I I watched it for, for my show and then was invited on onto another show to talk about it again. And I... Just, I, I said, I, I'm so flattered to be, <laughs> to be asked, but I don't think I can put myself through that again. Funnily enough, I did go on on that show, the the Flick Lab, to talk about Welcome or No Trespassing. So I, was, I, I compromised. <laughs> I was like, "Yep, yeah, Alan Klimov, he deserves to be known, not just for one of the best, yeah, war films of all time, but also this fantastic biting." satirical comedy as well there's a film that if i really wanted to ruin someone's day i might pair with this film uh with welcome in a trespassing it's really it's a great documentary it's a brilliant film and it's from 2019 and it's called immortal by ksenia ohapkina and it was shot in a mining town in russia that's usually close to the media i think it might be like a weird partner for this film because one of its main subjects is like how conformity and obedience are stifling kids today through after-school programs. And the real difference is that like today, these constraints on kids are super gendered. Like the boys are trained to be in the military and the girls are taught how to dance and makeup. And like, it's like a traditional folk kind of dancing. You get the sense from Immortal that like a totalitarian state will always benefit from snuffing out the individuality and creativity of people, especially young people. Like forms of government may change, but this this fact never will, which I think gives Immortal its title. But yeah, if, if you guys ever come across it, it's really, really good. But I'm curious, like what you guys would show with Welcome or No Trespassing. I did mention that this reminds me a lot of Czech comedies and even things like, you know, If a Thousand Clarinets or just even closely watched Trains. Just that whole idea of the how the officials are just out of touch. This would be, it's almost like Inochkin could grow up into the main character of uh, uh, Closely Watched Trains. I feel like this would go well with, the English title of it is Kidnapping Caucasian Style. From a couple of years later, the literal Russian title is Prisoner of the Caucasus, which is about 
it's less daring than this, but also the central conflict is of a local party official who is essentially using his position of power to do bad things. He's basically trying to force this young woman, member of the consul, to to marry him, which and it's played for laughs. So that sounds like on paper it's really dark, but it's quite fun and it really pokes fun at the again, the sort of like middle management class and how the system doesn't really work the way that it's supposed to. And unlike this film, it is in vibrant I guess it wouldn't be technicolor, but it's beautiful, vibrant uh, color palette and um it's a lot of fun in spite of the rather troubling subject matter. Yeah, if there are more films like this where it is this biting satire from this time, this is my wheelhouse. I would love to see more films like this because I was just so delighted when this movie started. And I was like, oh, this is what this is. This is really fantastic. And of course, there's Ivan Vasilievich Changes Profession, which I'm guessing you must have seen, Jana. I haven't. It's on my list, but I, I haven't gotten there ostensibly it's the same character or certainly played by the same leading man as a prisoner of the Caucasus, uh, this character called Shurik. In Ivan Vasilievich Changes Professions, he plays a nerdy scientist who creates a time machine and accidentally transports Ivan the Terrible to then present day 1970s Soviet Moscow. And he transports his apartment building manager, who is the spitting image of Ivan the Terrible, back. So they swap places. It's very, very funny. Um, and it has a brilliant central performance by, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm blanking on his name now, Yuri Yakovlev, who was one of the leads in, I haven't seen this one yet, but uh, Kin Zaza, which I know you covered on an earlier episode of this episode of this show. So this was from about 10, 12 years before Kinzaza. So he is, as far as I'm concerned, like 60s and 70s, and I guess 80s as well, uh, Soviet films, like MVP. He, he's a brilliant actor and can do all sorts of things in, in comedy. And a lot of the thing is he's... I've compared him in terms of his physicality before with John Cleese, but actually he has more of the kind of Graham Chapman straight man about him. The fact that he can make playing a serious authority figure seems so ridiculous. Definitely urge people to check out um, Ivan Vasilievich Changes Professions. And that's another, mm, I think, 90-minute movie. So it's it yeah it goes by in a breeze. And also is very silent film inflected in terms of its physical comedy. So hard recommend. <laughs> you know what I kept thinking about during this film, though, is... is- Richard Lester, like the director of A Hard Day's Night in Help and The Knack and How to Get It. I think it's because of like, there's this sense of this really joyful, zany energy of youth conveyed with like very kinetic camera. And it turns like this great ordinary world on its head. And you, yeah, you get the sense in, in Welcome and Trespassing and in Lester's films that like surrealism is always just under the surface and it just takes young people to unleash it. This film came out the same year as A Hard Day's Night, and I was sort of fantasizing about what it would be like to go from watching these kids try to undermine the camp director to watching the Beatles try to escape their management. 
like maybe there'd be too many handheld chase scenes. I don't know, but I think that could be really fun. All right, so let's go ahead and play a preview for next week's show. As for it, we'll be back next week with a look at three poplars in Plyushchika. That works for me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Gianna and Alistair, who will be with me throughout this month. We just talked about the Amphibian Man last week. Great discussion. And, yeah, we're talking about those three poplars next week. So, Gianna, what has been keeping you busy lately? I am... Going back to school in September and it's almost summer and I'm excited to just watch as much as I can to fill some gaps and check some things off my list. Um, I'm really excited to properly explore the Black Film Archive, which is this great online collection of Black cinema made before uh, 1979 and it's all free to stream. So that's what I'll be doing coming up. That sounds awesome. I don't think I've checked that out yet. Yeah, I can send you the link. It's really, really cool. I'm also really cool. excited to see Silent Twins, which is coming out this month in May. It's the film by the new film by Anishka Smochinska, who made The Lure, um, and it looks really, really good. Yeah. Just a side note: I interviewed her once, and the fucking file was ah, corrupted. No. Yeah, I was so pissed. Oh, I was so pissed. That's really yeah. Took a lot to get her on the phone, and yeah. then yeah, fucked up. And Alistair, how about yourself? So I am still plugging away with my show, Rus Files Unite, which uh, is about Russian and Soviet movies. And then I guest on various different podcasts. Um, I think this time I'll, I'll mention an episode of All the Best Lines that I did on the, I think it's 1939 Greta Garbo film Ninochka, which is Hollywood's send-up of Stalinist Russia, which... Uh, it's really good. It's it it surprised me how how fun that uh, that film that film was. I think I think it, it's Ernst Lubitsch, isn't it? I want to say. Um, I I want to say you're right, and I want to say it was um, Billy Wilder doing the script. That's oh, wow, right. You're right. Yes. yes. Yeah, and Lubitsch had. I think he spent like a a month or two visiting some friends in Moscow. So he had actually had some firsthand experience of how the proletarian utopia wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. So that film was a much 
more on point satire than I anticipated 1930s Hollywood would be capable of producing. So I would highly recommend that episode of All the Best Lines, and I would highly recommend Ninichka if you haven't seen that film. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Hello, Fada. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. He developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. He got ptomaine poisoning last night after dinner. All the counselors hate the waiters. And the lake has alligators. And the head coach wants no sissies. So he reads to us from something called Ulysses. Now I don't want this should scare you. But my bunkmate has malaria. Remember Jeffrey Hardy They're about to organize A searching party Take me home Oh Madafada Take me home I hate Granada Don't leave me Out in the forest Where I might Get eaten by a bear Take me I promise I will not make noise or mess the house with other boys. Oh, please don't make me stay. I've been here one whole day. <laughs> Dearest father, darling mother, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me. I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me. Wait a minute. It stopped hailing. Guys are swimming. Guys are sailing. Playing baseball. Gee, that's better. Mata Fada, kindly disregard this letter. (laughs) 